be seated. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask that you open it to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Uh, we'll soon, a um, little bit less soon than normal, but soon, uh, be reading from verse 18 of that chapter. If you don't have one with you, you can find a black Bible in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find the passage that we will be starting with, Exodus 33:18, uh, on page 69 of that Bible. On August 6th and 9th of 1946, the United States became the only nation in the history of the world so far to drop nuclear weapons in wartime. Each in their own way completely destroyed the cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And at the time, the U.S. was the only country with nuclear capabilities, but that did not last long. It's over the course of the next decade or two started to focus in on their technology of deployment and targeting. That was their chief concern. The Russians decided to go in a different direction. The Russians decided that you don't need to have really good targeting if you can just blow up everything. And so they just started making bombs larger and larger and larger. And this led to the creation of product 602, which also became to be known, as I found out this week, as Kuzma's mother, um, based on a, a saying in Russian that is to tell somebody that you're going to, to show them uh, what your business is and what their business is. You're going to shut them up. You're going you're to show them Kuzma's mother. And apparently Khrushchev said this to President Nixon at some, or to Vice President Nixon at some point in time, and the translator didn't know what to do with it. And so he just said it, and no one understood a lick of what that meant. Um, so because I was always told my sermons should be applicational, gold star to anyone as well, um, more regularly known as the Emperor of Bombs or the Tsar Bama. They kept increasing in size. In 1961, they decided to reduce or to, to test the Tsar Bama uh, by letting it go in the Arctic Circle. They reduced its capability by half. So instead of 100 megatons of TNT, it was only worth about 50 megatons of TNT. But by more than double, uh, it, it was the largest bomb that has ever been dropped. The fireball itself was a five-mile-wide ball that was hotter than the surface of the sun. The blast wave from this explosion circled the Earth three different times. It was felt by seismometers in New Zealand and recorded over about three-day period as it just kept circling the globe. 50 megatons is difficult to understand. If you took Little Man and Fat Boy, the ones that were re uh, reduced Hiroshima and Nagasaki to rubbles, and you put them together, and you drop them as a bomb. It's not double the size of those two. It's not four times the size of those two. It's not eight times or even 16 times the size of those two. It is 1,600 times the size of those two. If you somehow were to harness the power of the explosion over the course of five seconds, you would be able to power 58,000 New York cities during their peak power usage. So powerful was it that if you gathered all of the munition and the bombs that were exploded during the course of World War II, including the two nuclear bombs, you could set all of that off ten times before it got to the size of this one explosion. Such power is staggering and unfathomable. It, it really truly is unfathomable. It's, it, you, no one in here can, can ever get that. Even if you deal with numbers this big, even if you deal with explosives, you... You cannot 
in your mind truly understand what it means to see something that large, to experience something that large. So we use analogies and pictures. We throw different smaller numbers at the thing, but none of it can really do it justice. There are ways to sort of reconfigure what the power looks like, to analyze it. None of it really helps us. There is a greatness and a smallness to the world that simply escapes our ability to understand. On both sides of the spectrum, we hit concepts that we can talk intelligibly about, in a sense, without ever truly comprehending the limits of the thing. Who truly understands the size of an atom or the distance that it takes to get to the stars? We come today to a topic that is just like that. And one that outpaces all of the others by the same incomprehensible distance and size. What is the glory of God compiled together? What kind of order of syllables can we put together that's going to help us under to the magnitude of his brilliance and his might? Perhaps even in trying, we would undersell the very nature of the glory. We would make it something manageable, something quantifiable, which is probably why Scripture given to us that we might see the very thing that we speak of does so little to actually help define how brilliant and wondrous the glory of God is. We were told already in Exodus that Israel has seen the glory in the fire and the storm on the mountain. We know that Isaiah will see God sitting on his throne. Paul says that he sees Jesus when he appears to him brighter than the sun. John sees the very throne room, and yet in each of these, scant attention is actually given to describing in words the very glory that we have in God. It is the very thing for which we ought to long, and actually the very inheritance that's promised to us in our salvation. Jonathan Edwards described it as the essence of our heavenly reality. He said this, The pleasure of seeing God is so great and so strong that it takes the full possession of the heart. It fills it brimful, so that there shall be no room for any sorrow, no room in any corner for anything of an adverse nature from joy. There is no darkness that can bear such powerful light. It is impossible that they that see God face to face, that behold his glory and love so immediately as they do in heaven, should have any such thing as grief or pain in their hearts. The pleasure will be so great as fully and perfectly to employ every faculty. That is a wonderful and biblical, I would say, description of the result of seeing God's glory. I have no idea how to taste it. How, if we are given such scant descriptions of it, will we ever build up a desire for the thing? If you're going to lunch, you're going to have pizza, you're going to have Mexican food, you know what to expect. If your mother-in-law says, I'm going to make you something the likes of which you've never had before. That can go two ways. And you don't know whether you should be excited for it or you should be fearful of it. You don't know whether it's actually worth the anticipation or not. Is God's glory worth the anticipation or not? It's a hard world. Now, thankfully enough, our good friend Moses is quite bold as in his boldness, ask to see the very glory of God. And God 
and his kindness? Can we know, feel, and experience the glory of God for ourselves? I hope, hope that we can. And while the full vision of God's glory will have to wait, we can get a foretaste of it here. Let us read our passage, beginning in chapter 33, verse 18. We'll back up to verse 17 just for clarity's sake. And the Lord said to Moses, This is the very thing, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were written on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorite snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break apart their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. 
All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of the week, the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of their ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on it, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. This is the word of our Lord. The question before us is, can we experience some of the glory that Moses receives here? Can we get a taste of it before we get the full experience of the meal in heaven? How will we do that? The answer to that, I think, is a clear yes in Scripture. How we do it is up for some debate. I'm going to take Exodus 33 and 34 as indications of how we can honestly and truly do that. First, let us affirm the root of God's glory. Let's affirm the root of God's glory. Moses asks, quite naively, probably, to see the glory of God. But God says, instead, I will make my goodness pass before you. Immediately, Scripture pivots from talking about the glory, the, the sight, the vision of God's glory, to the goodness of God. It doesn't describe the sight. You notice it says nothing about what Moses saw, but it says much about what Moses heard. The glory of God, physical beauty, and character beauty necessarily as the same thing. We can look at actresses and actors and models and talk about how they can be beautiful, but know absolutely nothing about moral perfections or imperfections that they had. We can talk about the beauty of nature, and we can talk about its, its absolute jaw-dropping ability to make us wonder at it, but it doesn't have any moral capabilities either. We extend that somewhat unnaturally back to people. And when we do so, we're, we're sure to make note of it. And she's beautiful. And then we'll, we'll say, but, but she, the other one is, is beautiful on the inside. She's got characteristics. She's got morality. She's a good person. But God's glory his beauty cannot be addressed this way. You cannot separate 
the appearance of his glory from the character of his glory. God, as it turns out, doesn't have an inside and an outside. He is simple. All of him is who he is. The beauty of seeing God is rooted in the perfection of God's essence. Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God instead says, I will tell you who I am. That is my glory. And so God simply declares who he is. In verses 6 and 7 of chapter 34, probably along with Deuteronomy 6, one of the most important passages in all of the Pentateuch, God says that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He is not quick to condemn, but he's quick to forgive. He's quick to be kind and gracious and merciful. He moves on to talk about his steadfast love and faithfulness. That, that that graciousness and mercy are not characteristics of God most of the time. That these are not things that move him, not part of the time, but all of the time. You need both of those things. God is an incredibly gracious and merciful God. But he is always faithful to be gracious and merciful. He is always true to his word. Because he is always true to himself. And what's more, he keeps this love for thousands which on first reading doesn't sound too terribly impressive, honestly. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the events that just happened of the Levites going through and slaughtering people and then the plague that God brings afterward kills 23,000 people. To have 23,000 people die and God say, and I keep my love for thousands, doesn't sound like much. But we're meant to read that thousands in light of what he says next about his wrath. His wrath is to the third and fourth generation. I think his love, then, is meant to be read to the thousand generations. Listen to his grace and his mercy as much as they are a counterpoint to it. It's not just that God is gracious and he's angry. That God is merciful and he's just. But God is gracious and loving and even his his Wrath and anger pale in comparison to it. This is the goodness of God, the centrality of God, the essence of God. We, in our community groups, are reading Gentle and Lowly, which, if you're not part of a community group, get part of one. It's helpful, it's good. If you can't do that for whatever reason, you can get a free copy of that book. I think it'll be worth your time. The, the very first chapter, he introduces the, the whole summary of what he's getting at in the book. And that is, when Jesus proclaims himself to be gentle and lowly, what he means is the same moment he refuses to stand aloof from his people. You know those, those snaps you get on the 4th of July and you throw them down and they pop? If we are those, he is the Tsar Bama of human beings. And he doesn't mind dealing with us. He, he is approachable. He is kind and generous. But he is not somehow new. This isn't, this isn't a picture of God that is distinct from the Old Testament. Here at the center of the Old Testament, God is declaring himself to be gracious and merciful. This is just who he is. It's January now. It's likely that most of you have taken down your Christmas decorations. Others of you have not... Basically because of sloth, 
Some of you have disguised that sloth as a proclaimed zeal for the love of the birth of our Savior. God knows the truth. And everyone's had to deal with those returns. In 2018, on July, or on January 4th of 2018, a woman walked into a Costco in Santa Clara, California. She walked all the way through the store up to the customer service counter, dragging behind her the desecrated carcass of a Douglas fir. Costco had been selling real live living trees, and they have an incredibly liberal return policy. So she brought back her Christmas tree on January 4th to get a full refund. When asked why she was returning it, she said simply, well, it's dead. But as trees do. And I'm not sure what the guy behind the counter, or the lady behind the counter, actually did when she, she brought this in. I've dealt with customer service stuff before, not as a pastor, but as other, uh, other roles that I've had. And I know people who do stuff like this. It's annoying. And I know that it's not my money. It's Costco's money. It, you know, it's their policy. It's not mine. But it was the purpose of the thing. It's not like she was digging holes in the backyard trying to plant it or anything. I think taking advantage of people and things is reprehensible, and the fact that she's so bold and feckless to do such a thing would just irk me to no end, even if it was a policy, and even if the loophole was actually there by company policy. That's the principle of the thing. But my response to that is wholly different than how it seems God would respond to us. No one in here comes to Christ outside of dragging death behind them. When you come to him, you ask for life. Basically for and you know what? God is not irked. He's not reproachful. He's not put out. Nor does he in any way, shape, or form feel like he's being taken advantage of. He doesn't grumble about you sort of finding the loophole in his plan. He says, ah, here's another one who's finally read the fine print. And he's, he's kind of put out by the fact that you do this, friend. When you come to God and ask for forgiveness and ask for mercy... It is his pleasure to give it to you. It's more than that. It's his glory. To know his forgiveness. There is and all the things that you could see and experience, nothing that will come close to that. His work on the cross and Christ's satisfaction for your sins is not some sort of regretted loophole that God doesn't want you to take advantage of or some unfortunate thing that God is, is distraught by when you actually come to him for this. It is his joyful pleasure, the very working out of the heart of God. It is the sure and grounded root of his glory. If you desire to know, to see, and to taste of the glory of God, 
repent and believe. And by doing so, you affirm the very heart, the very root of the glory of God. Glory, remember his mercy and his kindness. Remember, remember his promises to you, his faithfulness to you. Moses responds well. Immediately he bows down and he worships. He takes something of a strange turn. He says, okay, well, as he's been interceding for Israel, he's been pleading for God to come along with Israel, for God to, to be with Israel because Israel needs God to be with him. He's like, if I'm going to be leading this rabble, I'm going to need you with me, but I'm going to need you with them as well. And one of the things that God has said is I can't go with you because they're a stiff-necked people. And if I go with this sort of stiff-necked people who are not going to bend to my rules, who are not going to listen to my, my, my ordinances, who are not going to hear my commands, if I go with you, I'm going to destroy them. And notice what Moses says. That very stiff-necked thing, which was the reason why God couldn't go with them, is now his reason for God coming with them. Moses sees now only with a God whose, whose center and glory is seen in mercy and forgiveness. Can he ever possibly lead such a people into the land? And can they ever exist in the land? He knows that because they're stiff-necked, God must go with them. Because if he's not with them, they will never be changed. They will never be forgiven. They need a kind and a generous God to be with them. God must be close because they need that kind of help. But God doesn't just want Moses to respond accordingly. God commands the people to act in ways of remembrance as well. He, he has Moses bring up the tablets and he rewrites the tablets, the Ten Commandments. He places them on stone there to go back with the people. But there's now more instruction beside the rest of these things are not actually written on the Ten Commandments themselves. The Ten Commandments stand, the Ten Words. The glory of God is such that God can only be their God. They, they can't have God and have other gods. So if, if they are going to experience the glory of God as Moses has somehow experienced the glory of God, these other gods need to be gone. God's glory is not to be shared. His glory cannot be truly compared. To compare it or to have other gods is to demean the glory of God. It's to say that, that God is not caring enough. He's not giving enough. He's not loving enough. He's not faithful enough. We need someone else. It's to diminish the glory of God. So God says, my glory is enough for you. My goodness is enough for you. I am the only God that you will have. He reiterates the promise to give them the land, but then he warns them, the people who are in the land do not serve me. And because they don't serve me, if you start to intermingle with them, if you make trees with them and policies with them, they will, they will whore, that very strong word, whore after their gods, sort of impolite almost way of talking about the fact that worship is a, is an incredibly intimate act for God. So how are these people who are already so stiff-necked, who are already prone to this, supposed to maintain their faith, maintain their monotheism in light of the cultures that they're going to be coming in light into? God gives them acts of remembrance. God gives them acts to perform that they might remember his glory, that they might remember on the one hand, his graciousness and his mercy, and on the other hand, that he is faithful to what he has said. 
First, he responds that they should remember their past. In verses 18 and 20 of chapter 34, he says, You shall keep the feast because leaven's evil or wrong. They didn't use any leaven because when they heard the news that Egypt was releasing them, they couldn't wait to leave. They literally couldn't wait. They, they didn't say, okay, well, I know that we can go now, but let's take our time, make sure that we get everything, A, B, C, D, and we got to let the bread rise. They said, no, we're able to go. We go now. Like they're escaping death, which is what they were doing. God spared their sons in grace, so you are to remember his grace. You are to remember that he didn't respond by making your sons die. He didn't take your sons from you. You are to remember that he gave you an exit from hell and from death. Living in a land without God was a past that you fled, and you fled immediately. And he has delivered you from that, that you might be his. He has been gracious and merciful to deliver you from that life. God talks about the fact that he was going to give them rest. A rest that was promised. But a rest that is always also likewise commanded. That six days you're going to work, and on the seventh day you're going to rest. Because you need to remember my promises. That I might not give you rest right away, but you were to model that behavior. You were to live in faith of the day when I will give you rest on all sides from everything. So six days you're going to work. And then you're going to rest. And then even in times of the Feast of Weeks, in the very center of the harvest, you're going to take time out in the center of the harvest to come and see me. So that you will know that I am not just faithful to give you future promises, but daily, just like we talked about with I'm merciful and gracious, but I'm merciful and gracious all the time. I'm not just merciful and gracious for the end. I'm merciful and gracious for the days to get you there. You're going to rest every week and every year. You're going to come and you're going to see me. And don't worry. Remember that God has been gracious and remember that he is faithful. And then finally, he talks about the source of life. Don't confuse death and life. In verse 25 and on through verse 26. That which gives life should not ever, by God's people, be confused with that which gives death. The sacrifices are there to give life to people, to allow them to stave off death, to allow the wrath of God to pass over them when they should be destroyed. The sacrifice symbolizes that you have passed through death and into life. But leaven symbolizes your desire to stay in Egypt, which is nothing less than death. You can't desire death and desire to pass on to life at the same time. So he says you cannot, you cannot take the sacrifice that is to give you life and use leavened bread with it. As though you wanted to stay all of it. It cannot remain until the morning. The sacrifices are there to be whole sacrifices, not part sacrifices, just as part of you can't die. We use that phrase, part of me died that day. No, no, all of you still lives. Like, you can't partly die. The princess bride lied to you. You're not mostly dead. You were all the way dead, man. And so if you were going to, to get through that death, you have to all the way die. You can't confuse death and life. You can't think that you're either, like, partially alive or partially dead. You're either dead or you're alive. Don't confuse the two. All this is made clear by that last somewhat surprising line that kind of jumps out at you when you read it because you're kind of like, well, I don't know why he says that. Why shall we not boil a young goat in its mother's milk? 
precisely because of this. That goat has died. You cannot then boil the to clarify for you how you ought to live. Milk sustains the life of the calf which you have taken. You can't mix the death of the calf with the thing that promised it life. The point is this, that there is a difference between death and life. Death is in disobedience to God. Death is, is looking and knowing and, and understanding what the covenant is and doing your own thing anyways. Death is turning your back on God. Life is apprehending his glory. Living for it, loving it, and going full tilt towards it. And these acts are given so the people would always have before them the graciousness of their God. That he delivered them from Egypt. And that, that grace and that mercy is upon them. And that it's always upon them. Daily, weekly, yearly being given to them in the provision that he has. So we are, likewise, to walk in these very things. Not by doing the exact same people who live in light of the graciousness and the goodness of God. We are to remember that God is happy to give to those who are in need. He is ready to supply you with your daily bread. That his promises will be true. So you can forgive your enemies. Because God has forgiven you. So you can give generously with a grateful heart to those who are in need. Because God has given much to you. You can encourage the downtrodden because God has encouraged you. You can give, you can worship, you can lay down your rights for God's glory is found in his mercy and his grace. And in doing so, you remember, you remind yourself, you force yourself to come to grips with the fact that God is gracious. To forgive someone who hates you forces you to remember that God is gracious and you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Achieve the radiance of God's glory. Moses returns to the camp and his face is lit up. I think it's hilarious that Moses doesn't know. I wonder if he's walking down a dark path and he's like, huh, there's like a flashlight in front of me. It's just blisteringly bright. We don't actually know what's going on. We don't know what it is. If it's just the appearance of a glowing face that kind of freaks out the Israelites, I, I think that that might be it. I don't know if it was just too bright. It was like a searchlight coming off of him. We, we don't know exactly what it is, but it, it freaks them out. And so they say, Moses, you got to put a lid on that thing, man. When you're around us, it's just not going to do to have you walking around with a face that glows like that. So Moses does that. We are probably right to think that no matter how much we might appreciate, to know, to experience, the joy of God and forgiving us as we come and repent before him. And he's in front of me when we take the Lord's Supper. We, we go and have a baptism. We, we do these things to remind ourselves of the graciousness and the kindness of God. It's unlikely that even in doing these things, anyone's going to leave here with their face lit up. Other than sort of metaphorically lit up. Yet for those who have not just known in the past tense God's graciousness and his mercy and his glory but who also will know it yet still. There should be some radiant joy in us, a goodness of je ne sais quoi in French, a certain something, something. A sort of undescribable feeling and, and way about us. We are to share with God's glory. We ourselves are to be 
filled with graciousness and goodness, with mercy and long-suffering. What the people saw in the face of Moses was nothing We don't just see the reflection of the full thing. We see the full thing unveiled. We see God's glory fully in Christ. Not in the face of one who gave the law, but rather in the source of glory itself who brought grace upon grace. To not be able to see the glory of God is to be blinded by the God of this age. To see it is nothing less than to become a new creation. Because we are not people who are proclaiming Moses. We don't, we don't get up here and talk about how wonderful Moses was and how good Moses was. And we're not proclaiming ourselves. You are not to become like me in the straightforward sense. Please don't. One is more than enough. My wife will be very clear with you on that. You are not to become just as we are, as though we were the goal. You're not to become as I am, as though I am the goal. But we proclaim Christ, that you might become as he is. Because we've seen God's glory. We've seen it not so much in one another as we have in Christ himself. We've experienced it by the work of the Holy Spirit. We have shared it with the Father himself. It radiates in the very face of Jesus Christ. Therefore, each and every one of us can go into the darkness of this world. A world that loves sin, loves evil, that loves pride and violence, that loves impurity and godlessness. We can go into a world in which you will suffer and you will sacrifice. Where you will be afflicted, but never crushed. You will, you will always be seen as losers in the world. As those who couldn't stand on their own. As those who couldn't play the game of the world the way that everyone else seems to play it. You'd be told that you had to rely upon a crutch. That you had to, to rely upon the opiate of the masses. And you may be told these things. You will always be carrying around the very death of Christ in yourself because those are the very same things that they said about him. If you are strong enough, why don't you get yourself down off the cross? If you are so good, friends, why don't you just be good? Why rely on him? We always carry around in ourselves the very death of Christ. But all the more that somehow the life of Christ ourselves so come down from the mountain go to all the world radiating the love kindness the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ know his glory in all of its beauty and power the grace and the mercy of God to happily joyfully forgive sinners like you and me because his glory is your salvation, it is your end, it is your happiness, it is your pleasure, it is your good, and he is your God. Let's pray.
God, may those present here today experience your glory. May they know the kindness and the graciousness of and joy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. May such an experience of his grace be rich and true. Let it sustain us through the dark and difficult paths of this world. And in doing so, may your people glorify you. As we do, we pray these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.